Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at prison protests in Palestine. What are they, what do they achieve, and what can we learn? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Today we're looking at protest by prisoners. Some of the most famous cases of protest politics involve protests by prisoners. Think of hunger-striking suffragettes in early 20th century Britain. Think of the dirty protest among Republican prisoners in Belfast in the late 1970s, and then the hunger strikes there in 1981. Indeed, just two weeks ago on this podcast, we were discussing Alexei Navalny, Russian opposition leader who remains influential despite being behind bars. Prison protests may be invisible to the outside world, but they can nevertheless resonate widely. Well, here we're looking at another case, the case of Palestinian prisoners, in particular of Palestinians who are in prison cells in Israel. A new book by a familiar voice on this podcast explores that case in detail. That voice belongs to Dr Julie Norman, who is lecturer in politics and international relations here in the UCL Department of Political Science. Regular listeners will know Julie for our regular panels on US politics over the past year, but her main research expertise lies in protest in Palestine. Her first book was on the Second Palestinian Intifada, her second on understanding nonviolence, and her third, the Palestinian Prisoners Movement, Disobedience and Resistance, came out over the summer. And I'm delighted to say that Julie joins us now. We're also joined by Dr Carl Gibson, who is an assistant professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham. Carl is an expert on terrorism, resistance and political violence in Palestine, and his book, Terrorism in the West Bank, Palestine and the Politics of a Contested Term, is due out next year. Julie and Carl, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. And Julie, shall we begin by setting the scene a little? Who are the people we're talking about here? Who, who are they? Why are they in prison? How many of them are there? Well, thanks very much, Alan. The book focuses on Palestinians who are imprisoned in Israeli jails. These are Palestinians who are arrested for what are considered politically motivated offenses. They're considered security prisoners by Israel. And what that means is they're different than what in Britain has been called uh, common ordinary criminals. So they're in either different sections or different prisons altogether from, from quote-unquote regular criminals. This includes people who have been tried and sentenced, as well as people who have been arbitrarily detained or in detention without uh, charges or trial. I think it's interesting, Alan, people often are surprised that about 20% of the Palestinian population and about 40% of the Palestinian male population has been arrested or detained at some point. This is not because that many people are involved in, say, terrorist activity or have blood on their hands, but more because of the way the legal system is set up right now in Israel-Palestine. In the occupied territories, uh, military law is what governs those territories. There are over 1,600 military orders that govern every aspect of everyday life, including very strict limits on any kind of organizing or political protest. 
As a result, many people are picked up and detained for all kinds of offenses from simply more than 10 people organizing for charges of incitement, even when it's just a protest. So the charges vary. I want to emphasize that that's not what I was looking at specifically in this book and in the research. That wasn't the focus, but I know it's a, it's an important uh, question. So for... For the people that I was speaking to, it was really a mix. There were many who were in prison for throwing stones, for being involved in protests. Um, and again, my research was a sort of political history. So I was interviewing people who had been imprisoned all the way from 1967 to the present. So the reason that they were there varied quite greatly. So we're going to get into lots of detail on what you find through the research. But uh, just before we get into that, it would be really helpful to understand why you decided to write this book. What's the journey that you have been on that took you to writing this book? Well, thanks for asking that, Alan. Um, the journey was in several different pieces. I started working in the region during grad school, and one of the projects I was involved with there was a youth media project in some of the Palestinian refugee camps in the West Bank that I was working on with some friends and colleagues there. And what was very striking to me, even as someone who was studying and working on the conflict and uh, doing my research on it, was how much the story of imprisonment in Palestine is really not told outside of the territories, and yet is so salient within, especially in the refugee camp uh, communities. Uh, the issue of imprisonment affects literally every family there. Everyone knows someone or has been personally affected by imprisonment. Um, this included even young people, teenagers, who I was working with in this youth project. So I was really struck by the salience of this just on a very personal individual level. At the same time, I was conducting research for my first book and dissertation on nonviolent resistance in the West Bank more broadly. And in many of my interviews for that research, numerous activists referenced their time in prison as being quite formative and influential on their later activism and on their philosophies for organizing. So I sort of put a pin in this when I was writing that first book and said, I really want to come back and interrogate this further, figure out what was going on in the prisons, how people were resisting, how this affected their later activism, and perhaps even the trajectory of the conflict. So that was really the impetus. And when I started looking into it more, I was quite struck by the uh, lack of research on the Palestinian prisoners movement in general, at least in English, but also on hunger strikes and prison-based resistance and political science literature more broadly. There's obviously much writing in criminology and sociology, but not a lot from a political science perspective. So it seemed like something worth pursuing. Mm. And let's go a step even further back. How did you start studying uh, Palestine? Were you there or did, did you... Uh, I mean, what's the journey that took you to studying? Yeah, I don't have a... Uh, a super good answer to that, other than it was something that interested me from a very young age. Uh, when I was a teenager growing up, uh, just my first formative years of starting to read the newspapers were when the Oslo Accords were in the newspapers a lot, and I was just really struck by this idea of the peace process. I read a lot of historical fiction at the time about Israel and Palestine. Uh, and then when I was in university, that's when 9-11 happened, and also when the Second Intifada restarted. So um, I was motivated at that point to actually go to the region and see for myself what was going on. And we'll be quite honest that a lot of my own 
assumptions, misconceptions were challenged quite quickly once I started traveling there and I got rather hooked and ended up working there for quite a long time. Mm, I guess that's how lots of us actually end up studying these things. We just find them fascinating in, in kind of formative years, fairly early in our life. There are important things happening in the world. Certainly I, I remember 1989 and the collapse of communism was something that happened when I was getting really into politics and I ended up spending quite a lot of my time uh, researching these things too. So it's, uh, it's a path that many of us take, I suspect. Um, Carl, let's bring you in as well. Um, you're also an expert on uh, politics and protest in, in Palestine. How did you get into this area? Um, so mine was actually very similar to Julie's, Alan. I um, grew up in Northern Ireland and in the 90s when our own peace process was very much at the forefront of my own lived experience and sort of the wider political discussions, I saw a lot of similarities and overlap in what was happening in Israel-Palestine. So there was quite a general consciousness, I think, on my part. But I actually ended up in the region um, to study Arabic, which is how I went there first. And a three-month trip um, in 2012 ended up being four years. So... Um, that transitioned into a PhD on, on uh, topics relating to terrorism in Palestine and um, the journey's carried on ever since. Well, we will explore further. Let's uh, go then to Julie's book, uh, which will be the main focus for our discussion. Can you uh, tell us what the core argument of the book is? Sure. So I wanted to say first also that the book is based on interviews with former prisoners as well as former security sector personnel. And the main findings that I had from this were somewhat threefold and build on each other. The first is just that prison-based resistance in protracted conflicts especially, like Israel-Palestine, means much bigger things than just hunger strikes. I think we often focus on those very high-profile, media-grabbing uh, hunger strikes, which are, of course, important. But I was trying to get below the surface of that. And so part of the book is simply expository and descriptive, trying to figure out what prisoners were actually doing. And indeed, what so many former prisoners emphasized to me was that many of the basic rights came through not because of hunger strikes specifically, but because of other day-to-day -day actions of disobedience that prisoners engaged in. So, for example, when strip searching was extremely common in the prisons, as it continues to be in certain prisons, prisoners made the conscious choice to simply refuse to remove their clothes for the strip search. And one individual recounted, he said, we, we knew we would be beaten, we knew we would be put in isolation, but we all committed to doing it for as long as it took that it would just wear down the guards from having to punish all of us every day for refusing that. So they were able to get some, uh, to essentially bargain for some concessions on, on strip searching. Uh, the same with certain uh, uh, rules such as having to call the guards like my lord or my master. Uh, they refused to do that and, again, knew they would be beaten, knew they would be punished, but figured that they could hold on long enough to have that rule change, which they eventually did. So I was very interested in those day-to-day -day actions that aren't in the headlines, that don't you know, disseminate out to solidarity groups, but are really what change things on a day-to-day -day level for prisoners. As well, prisoners were very savvy, I would say, in setting up what in nonviolence research we called alternative institutions, or what I call in the book a counter-order, borrowing from uh, Maya Rosenfeld. And this was a system of self-governance, um, an education curriculum that was very rigorous and quite strict, a very well-developed covert communication system, self-government, even self-financing. So prisoners had this very covert organization system that really provided the foundation, the support for when they needed to organize for a hunger strike that was there. Um, 
my research comes out of nonviolence work and social movements. It was really interesting to me to see the institutional foundations for the more spectacular episodes of hunger strikes, just as in social movements, those that are most effective usually have this quite strong organizing capacity below the, the protests. So that was one major uh, takeaway from the research. The second, and building on that, was that, again, I think we often think of prison-based resistance as totally a boomerang effect, trying to get these stories of a hunger strike out to the wider world, people putting pressure on the state to release prisoners. And certainly that's a part of it. But what I found is that much more the most effective strikes were those that were focusing on the internal workings of the prison and simply trying to appeal to the prison administration itself by making the prison system unworkable through some of those examples that I just gave. So the external support was certainly welcome, but the actual times that the prison administration was willing to negotiate were based much more on internal dynamics than external pressure. So I thought that was notable. Likewise, many of the pushes that that prisoners had were for rights within the prison, not for release, which is also something that I think we think of and that solidarity groups tend to focus on. And the last finding, again, building out a bit further, is I see prisons as functioning as really overlooked epicenters of protracted conflict in a way, um, a very much a locus of control for the state and very much a locus of resistance for, for prisoners. And I think the salience of the issue around that is something that is often underappreciated. Um, states, I think, often rely very heavily on mass arrests and especially on detention and protracted conflicts. That is for uh, arguably short-term security, but I argue that ultimately backfires because the prisoner's issue itself becomes so salient. Likewise, I argue that there's often uh, missed opportunities in terms of trying to leverage the salience of the prisoner's issue in terms of prisoner swaps or prisoner releases to push forward on negotiations or a peace process. That's been touched on a little bit in Israel-Palestine as well as some other uh, protracted conflicts, but it's an area where I think we need more work and research as to when and where that actually works. Mm. So this is really fascinating. When I started reading the book, I was thinking, so what what are the goals of these people? What are the purposes of these protests? And I guess I was kind of thinking in my head that, you know, is this about trying to change things in their own lives and the conditions that they're living in, the prisoners? Is it about wider political goals? Or is it just about kind of an, an assertion of their, their own humanity? And it's not that they are trying to achieve things, it's just that the act of protest in itself is 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 its own purpose, if you like. Um, and it sounds very much as if it's the first of those. It's primarily about changing things in their own lives. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say yes to all of the above. And certainly it varied for each individual and depending on the time period. Certainly for those who were imprisoned in the early years of the occupation from 1967, especially up through the 70s, the protests and the strikes were very much focused on gaining basic rights simply because the prison conditions were at a much uh, harsher level at that point. Prisoners had no access to even to pens and papers, to books, to these kinds of things. By the 80s, they had access to radios, television. So things changed over time, and that means the objectives changed over time as well. Um, likewise, as you noted, the act of resistance itself I would say was important, but was embodied more in that counter order that I mentioned. That is really where prisoners said to me that they got a sense of daily purpose of maintaining their dignity in the prisons more than, say, the hunger strikes, which, of course, were collective action that was was taken quite seriously. But on the day to day level, it was more of what prisoners were doing horizontally, if you will, um, in terms of their own self-organizing across themselves and trying to strengthen themselves in their day to day life. So does that mean that 
prison protests are actually quite separate from protests that might be taking outside the prison, that they have a different agenda, a different focus, they're not pursuing the same aims, or, or are there connections there? There certainly are connections, and one argument that I make in the book is that the Palestinian national movement and the Palestinian prisoners movement quite closely follow each other. When the Palestinian national movement was strongest in the 70s and 80s, so was the Palestinian prisoners movement, and then after Oslo, both uh, fragmented and are much much weaker, so to speak. But I would emphasize that my my push in the book is to emphasize that much of the activism and protest actually starts from the prisons and from the prisoners issue and is almost a push out rather than a direction in. I think we also we often think that political parties, whether it's factions from the PLO or, say, in a UK context like the IRA, are kind of using their prisoners as pawns and kind of directing them to do these strikes and protests. And in my interviews, it's actually been quite different. Prisoners are uh, usually the ones who are organizing on their own, and it's the factions outside that need to catch up and often follow their lead. Hmm. Carl, you're also an expert on Palestine. How did you, how did you react to the book? Um, so I thought the book was fantastic, I should say that from the outset. But my key takeaway was actually precisely what Julie just said, which was this ability to read the Palestinian prisoners' movement, not only as a microcosm of the wider Palestinian national movement itself, but that there was this two-way agency going on here as well, and that it wasn't simply that the sheer number of Palestinians that are um, incarcerated, you know, reflect the wider demographic realities of Palestinian politics. So I think the number that Adamir recently cited was um, 4,650 political prisoners. So this is a huge um, section of the population. But actually, what is going on inside these prisons directly diffuses back out into Palestinian politics, both as a sort of source of inspiration, but also as a determinant of Palestinian politics. So we might see this, for example, in the summer's um, election of positions in Hamas, where alongside deputies in um, exile or in the West Bank, there's um, Salami Qatawi, who was elected as the head of prisoner affairs. And these consider- these leverage considerable weight, not just inside the prison populations, but in sort of the real world politics um, that we see a bit more visibly. And I think Julie's book really explains the context for how that can happen. Yes, I mean, I would, I would, I'm glad that that, that 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 was clear and that was a key takeaway. And yeah, as Carl mentioned, we see this playing out, you know, up to this day with how much the prisoners issue is invoked by Palestinian politicians. Politicians really have very little chance if they are not seen to be on the side of prisoners and that manifests in different ways. You know, many prisoners are often disillusioned by their, the rhetoric that po- the politicians give to them. But the fact is, um, it is quite salient and at sometimes can really have real impact as well. And uh, you, we've seen the prisoners themselves put pressure on, whether it's Hamas or Fatah, to be more vocal on either their behalf or on certain aims of the movement. So we definitely see that, that, that interagency that Carl mentioned. And Carl, do you have any questions for Julia about the research and about her findings? Um, yes, I have a number. Some relate to the methodology, which I think is a fascinating way of um, of generating data on a topic like this. But before so, um, I'd like to ask about how your findings in the book have translated into some recent developments in Palestinian politics. So one of the key takeaways about this mirroring of the changes in the Palestinian national movement also being reflected in developments in the prisoner movement has been that it's gone from a peak in the 80s through to a real trough and sense of fragmentation in the 2000s. Um, and has that been challenged perhaps by some of the recent developments inside Palestine? I'm thinking the unity intifada of earlier this year. 
Yeah, so thank you for that question. Um, I would say despite the the unity intifada and some episodes or moments of, of, of stronger unity that we've seen, as a whole, I am still somewhat pessimistic about the Palestinian national movement, also the Palestinian prisoners movement, as still being relatively uh, fragmented and individualized. In terms of the prisoners movement, what has changed the most is the movement away from mostly collective strikes to much more individualized strikes. This was something that began during the Second Intifada, again, got a lot of external media attention. Um, But two things were different. One, again, these strikes were usually individuals. Sometimes there was a small collective strike around that, but mostly it was around an individual. This is a very different model from the, I would argue, more successful strikes of the 70s and 80s, where you had entire prisons and the entire prison system essentially going on on hunger strike or engaging in these actions. An individual strike is simply much easier for the prison administration to deal with. Um, whether it's through force feeding, which Israel admittedly has not really used all that much on on these individuals, or simply just the rest of the prison can keep working just fine. So it doesn't force negotiations in the same way that a collective strike would. Secondly, the individual strikes are more focused on release rather than on changing conditions. And one thing that was interesting when speaking with the uh, security personnel and the former um, prison administrators, they really have very little say over who is released. Like that's an issue for the Ministry of Justice and for the state. What they have control over is what happens in the prisons. So there's really only so much that they can respond to even if they wanted to with an individual strike or a strike that's oriented around release. So I see both those changes as definitely shifting the movement in a different direction. And then Palestinian politics on the outside, I would just say, you know, in the last 15 years since the Hamas Fatah split, um, even more so than Oslo, I think that has just weakened Palestinian politics so much. And yes, there's these times when everyone kind of comes together and it's the sense of unity again. But those, I would say, are the exception rather than the rule. Um, Carl mentioned methodology there, and we, we do like a good discussion of methodology on this, this podcast. So we'll get on to that in just a moment. Um, but just before we do so, I'm really interested in this um this point that you you make that generally when we think about prison protests we think about hunger strikes so you know i mentioned the suffragettes at the start i mentioned the the hunger strike in the maze prison in belfast in in 1981 i mentioned alexei navalny who you know he was also on, on hunger strike that was another technique that he employed why is it that we so often associate prison protest with hunger strike and why you know is is the case that you're looking at different from the norm or is it that normally we're failing to capture the full range of protest that does actually take place in prisons yeah so i would emphasize that hunger strikes are definitely kind of the peak resistance for Palestinian prisoners as, as well as prisoners in most other protracted conflicts. So I don't want to at all diminish its its role or salience here. But just to say that if you think of a of an iceberg kind of model where you kind of see that tip above the water, but below that is a whole mass of other actions and organizing that have enabled that that final action to take place. Um, and prisoners told me they would often plan like at least over a year in advance for some of the strikes that end up being most successful. And they would practice like fasting for a couple days, like just to get their bodies used to it. Older prisoners would kind of train younger prisoners in what to expect. So this was not just kind of a split decision, like we're all going to go on hunger strike tomorrow. Like these were usually planned things and again, usually had other actions leading up to it. 
Hunger strikes are also a last resort for prisoners, and it's one that puts them obviously not only at great physical risk, um, but also right in, in terms of punitive response right away. Hunger strikes are, quote unquote, against the rules in prison, so you're automatically punished if you go on hunger strike. So it's not a decision that's taken lightly. Um, I definitely think it's important to notice when hunger strikes are happening because it means that things have gotten to a certain point. But for my research, I was trying to undercover what other kinds of resistance were happening that uh, enabled the hunger strikes to even take place in the first place, but were even perhaps even more instrumental in gaining smaller rights on a day-to-day basis. So what is it that gives a prisoner leverage? Um I mean, you mentioned earlier just really irritating and annoying the prison guards until the prison guards start doing things a bit differently. I suppose with a hunger strike, it's threatening the regime with their own deaths, ultimately. And, absolutely. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and that's another reason why hunger strikes kind of seize the public imagination as well, is it's such a dramatic movement to be willing to sacrifice one's life for whatever the cause in question is, uh, whether it's something related to prison or Palestine or elsewhere. And in terms of leverage, right, I would say the prisoner's health is one that the state is obligated to maintain, so it's not in the state's interest to have a prisoner die. Um, From a pragmatic level, that usually sparks a lot of protests and a lot of resistance internally as well as externally. Um, and there's just a certain obligation on the state. But again, with that said, um, the prison officials themselves were usually more motivated to uh, to bargain when they felt that the prison system itself was becoming unworkable. unworkable. Um, again, for people who study public policy, like prisons are kind of peak bureaucracy and organization and you want the prison to run smoothly. So if you have prisoners who are daily for for weeks or months on end refusing or disobeying, so to speak, in a way that makes that unable to happen, then there comes a point where the prison is usually willing to negotiate. And I think Northern Ireland is a good example on this as well, with things like the dirty protests, even before the hunger strikes, that put just a lot of strain and pressure on the prison system. Cool. Yeah, so when I was reading your book, I think the detail on the counter order is one of the real highlights of the book, where you go into great sort of depth showing how all these non-dramatic or, say, less visible, you know, the bits below the, the surface of the iceberg, if we take that analogy, really sort of were effective in bringing about those changes for Palestinians. Um, you also brought in a term um, called dilemma actions, which I think speaks to what Alan was asking really, really nicely. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about that, because that seems to me where the real leverage for those specific goals were. Absolutely. So thank you for that. So dilemma actions is a term, again, from nonviolence and social movement literature uh, coined by Brian Martin. And it was essentially in terms of protest. So in the way that Martin was using it was saying... If protesters use uh, use protests and a state uses violence against them, that, that kind of backfires. And so a state has a dilemma action to either crack down on the protest or to let the protest go on and potentially get more, uh, more support. So I apply that in the case of the prisons, whereas when prisoners are especially engaging in a hunger strike, it creates this dilemma action for the prison administrators where they're either forced to, you know, let a prisoner or in some of these cases, like mass numbers of prisoners die or to concede some kinds of rights. And so that's where I got to the point of enabling at least a negotiation, which didn't usually result in in all or even most of prisoners' rights, but often an incremental increase. 
Let's move on to discussing methodology then. So you've given us some hints. You've talked about how you talked with a lot of these former prisoners, but uh, can you give a little bit more of a flavour of how you actually did the research for this book? Yeah, so the core of the research was based on uh, long-form oral history-style narrative interviews with former prisoners. I interviewed about 40 uh, individuals in this long-form method as as well as others in shorter form. Um, And as well, uh, Palestinian lawyers... Israeli lawyers, and former members of Israel's security sector. So a former head of uh, Shin Bet, Israel's internal security service, um, the former head of prison ministry, and uh, former head of police intelligence. Um, I also did surveys trying to just gauge both Israeli and Palestinian opinion on hunger strikes and and if people knew what was going on and how it affected them. Uh, And then again, some of this just came out of um, ethnography essentially being in a lot of Palestinian refugee camps and villages and and kind of hearing these stories and, you know, uh, spending time with families whose whose, um, uh, members were in prison and whatnot. So this methodology, I would say it it was very interesting for me and I felt was quite necessary for this project, especially the long form oral history style approach of the interviews. I think it's notable that I was I had been working in in the Palestinian territories for about five years by the time I started this research. I had already done the project on nonviolent resistance. So I was I knew a lot of activists by that point and had worked quite closely in a lot of communities, especially on youth projects. So the trust element was there pretty quickly when I started trying to do this work. Um, and what I found was this was a project that relied largely on snowball method, but not not completely. Um, but at the end of each interview, I'd ask the person, is there someone else you would recommend that I speak to? And usually if you had a recommendation from someone that someone knew, they would be, be willing uh, willing to speak with you. And I was I was surprised, but then not surprised, that, that people were quite keen to talk about this issue. Um, unlike some other contexts, Palestinian prisoners are fairly well respected in the society to some degree, at least for men. It's a little different for women um, historically. But um, people were pretty eager to talk and wanted these stories to be told and heard uh, outside of just Palestine to the extent that if I was in a bus or a taxi and like got chatting about the research, you know, people would often like volunteer themselves or their, their brother or cousin to have a chat with me. Um, and the actual interviews themselves, you just needed patience. I mean, they were, they would often take place over several periods. So I would often meet someone for, for coffee or tea and then meet them again later at their home or in their village or something and go a little bit more in depth. Um, but again, it was, uh, it was not hard to get people to open up about this in contrast to, other places where I've done similar research, like Northern Ireland or South Africa, where people are not quite as forthcoming about uh, this particular experience. Mm. Carl, you wanted to come in on the methodology. Yeah, um, there's obviously great value in looking at that survey data that that you do bring into the book as well. But I wanted to see what you, you thought about the value of engaging people's stories. So when I read the book, one of the bits that I that made me read it sort of cover to cover without putting it down was that there was this constant presence of people's lives and people sharing quite um, emotionally fueled testimonies in a number of occasions. And it not only makes for a great read, but it makes for a great study. And I'd like to see what you think about the value of, of engaging that type of oral history. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that question. Uh, and that's been very much a motivation of all of my work is trying to tell stories that otherwise would not get out would not get heard and bringing in that personal element while also saying something larger about a larger phenomenon. And for me, the oral history approach has been the 
the go-to method for being able to do that, for having it be a kind of a shared methodology where people can guide the discussion and, and, and tell you what, what, where they take it where they want to take it to some degree. And it was important for me in the book to have those stories come out. I mean, the book has a lot on, uh, you know, the legal history and on, on other things as well. But but those personal stories are really what are the anchors of the book. And they're really what inform my understanding of what was going on. And ethnography is tricky as well. It can be not only a slightly challenging sell to some academic audiences as well, but the methodology itself can be challenging and takes a long time to to undertake. Um, what was the biggest challenge you faced? So as you noted, it is a time-consuming methodology for sure, um, but one that I, I feel is worth it at the end. Um, I mean, the biggest challenge, again, there were things that I was hoping I would be able to get in the book and couldn't. I, I mentioned female prisoners a minute ago, and and I found it much harder to get women to speak to me than than men. There are much fewer Palestinian uh, female prisoners to begin with, but even those who I was able to get contacts with, it was harder to get them to speak with me um, about some of these issues. Um, likewise, my work in the region is always like most research somewhat constricted and where you're able to get access. So I was not able to do uh, research in Gaza, which is where a lot of uh, Palestinian prisoners, um, you know, or at least are, are from or, or have been returned to. So my research was limited in in this the scope of where where it could reach. It was mostly West Bank. I guess a concern that some people might have of this kind of research is a danger that if you're really sort of steeping yourself in this this community and this life, then you can kind of go native, to use the the, the term that is sometimes used to describe this. Is, is that a danger that we should be concerned about? Is it something that you can overcome? Well, I, I think it certainly is something to be very mindful of and conscious of when engaging in this kind of research, especially in a protracted conflict. One reason that I included Israeli interviews as well was for that exact reason. Um, and I got a lot of I have gotten pushback already about that decision, but it's one that I stand by. One, I just think it makes the... I, I was able to find out a lot more about what actually worked and what didn't by speaking to um, authorities than, than just speaking to, to those who are, who are activists. Um, but it also kept me in check also with some of what I was hearing and some of the stories that you wanted to you know, completely lean into and, and of course, believe it often had different facets of it. So... You know, one example, and this is a small one, but uh, one prisoner had spoken about you know, protesting and, and, and doing different kinds of things to try and get a right to have a thermos in his cell that he could make tea in the morning and have like tea throughout the day in this thermos. And then when I spoke to one of the um, Israeli prison authorities, uh, they mentioned this exact same case where they really pushed back on this guy having this thermos because they saw it as being a weapon where anything that could be kept hot in a thing like a thermos could then be thrown at like hot water could be thrown in the face of a guard or that kind of thing. So that was just one example of something that, uh, you know, a very simple object where the two different people I was interviewing that had engaged with that specific object saw it in very different lights. And I would just say too, I mean, this was not across the board, but numerous prisoners mentioned the complexity and nuance of the relationship with some of the guards. I mean, there wasn't, um, affection by any means, where there was a recognition that some guards had a much more humane approach than others. Some would smuggle things for the prisoners and whatnot. So I was actually very interested in that that relationship. And that was one 
Carl, you asked things. I, I would have liked to have been able to get even more of that, but it's very difficult to get people to go on the record to, to speak to that kind of thing. But yeah, that was that was a choice that I made uh, to try and check my own um, opinions and, and assumptions and, and perhaps biases as I was doing this work. Hmm. Final question. Um, many of the listeners to this podcast, of course, are not experts on Palestine. They're not, uh, they may, may be interested, but not, not specially interested in Palestine. What do you think are the, the comparative lessons uh, from this research that people should be interested in? Yeah, well, um, after I did the core of this research, I, I actually did a jump off project from this doing a comparative study with Northern Ireland and South Africa and spent time in both of those places also interviewing former prisoners and uh, former security officials and found very similar patterns across those three, what I would say, protracted conflicts and what some would call like post-colonial conflicts, um, just the nature of the conflict and specifically the use of mass imprisonment in each of the conflicts and also the use of arbitrary detention or what was called internment in Northern Ireland. So kind of pick, picking people up and holding them without charge or trial. Um, the forms of resistance were not, uh, you know, were not synonymous, were not exactly the same across, but you saw similar, a sense of a counter order in each context, a sense of some kind of like education curriculum, the sense of day-to-day -day resistance leading up to a hunger strike, but not being limited to hunger strikes, and really having a quite strong effect on the broader organizing in those conflicts. So I think there's a lot that can be connected to protracted conflicts in general. Um, I did try and make some links to say hunger strikes in Guantanamo Bay, to um, mass incarceration and prison-based resistance in places like the U.S. And there are some similarities that can be drawn to those places, but the main findings for me were those that linked specifically to protracted conflicts and this specific kind of uh, context. Mm, great. Well, thank you so much to Julie and to Carl. As, as Carl said, I, 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 I too found it just such an engaging read. The stories and the, the, the detail that you get is so fascinating. So uh, even as a non-expert, I, uh, I found it really, really interesting to read. So thank you both, uh, Carl Gibson and especially Julie Norbin, uh, for that. And Julie's book is called The Palestinian Prisoners' Movement, Disobedience and Resistance. It's out now, published by Routledge. And if you'd like to hear more, UCL's Institute of Advanced Studies will be hosting a virtual book launch on Monday, the 25th of October. So next Monday, if you're listening to the podcast just after its release, uh, Monday, the 25th of October at 5.30 p.m. And Julie will be in conversation there with Professor Dina Matar, the chair of the Centre for Palestinian Studies at SOAS, and also Dr. Seth Anziska from the UCL Department of Jewish and Hebrew Studies. And we'll put the link to that event in the programme notes for this episode. Next week, we have a curtain raiser for the COP26 Climate Change Conference, which starts at the end of the month. We'll be discussing the global politics of climate change with three UCL experts. As ever, to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. Thank you.